announcing uh, the Lord's coming. This is part three. This one is entitled The Servant of the Lord. Um, I hope you remember that last week I talked about Moses, the servant of the Lord, and how Moses announced Jesus' coming by saying that God would raise up a prophet like him that was faithful in all God's house. And we saw Moses was sent as a rescuer to set God's people free. And Jesus stepped into that story as a prophet like Moses with God's rescuing plan to set us to set God's people free and to fulfill his covenant promises. My focus today is on the prophet Isaiah. John's gospel makes a remarkable declaration about Isaiah in John chapter 12, verse 41. If you've got your Bibles, do please turn to them. I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture tonight. You, you needn't turn to all of them, but I'd love you to turn to some. But John 12, 41, it says these simple words that, that uh, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. And if you like, remember last week, we said how Moses spoke about Jesus. But what a testament that is that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. This may be slightly an unusual talk for some of them. I haven't got three points. Um, but what I'm trying to do is, is, is follow the train of revelation that God gave Isaiah concerning the one who was coming. I'll try to do it justice, but it's an amazing book. And in a short time, I can't really do that. But I invite you with open Bibles and, and open hearts and to come onto holy ground as we see Isaiah announcing the, the advent, the coming of the Lord. I aim to stick to time and I hope you won't be watching the clock. Um, but as I've always felt the word and worship go together. So my hope is that as you hear and listen uh, to God's word, that worship will arise in your hearts as we listen. So Isaiah, we are told, saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. It's a remarkable book, Isaiah. And there seems to be a petition, not quite in the middle, at the end of the 39th chapter that corresponds to our Old and our New Testaments. The first 39 chapters seems to focus on the just judgments of God worked out in this impending exile of the Jews into Babylon. But the second 27, and those astute people above amongst us will have worked out, of course, that there are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. And that's something of a coincidence because the chapter divisions didn't come till many centuries later. But the second part, the second 27, seems to point to God's saving power. And it concludes with a description of the new heaven and the new earth. Within the first part of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, there's a picture of a king who will come. He's an ideal and a perfect king. So much so that when Isaiah had his commission and he saw that incredible vision of God, he says at the end of it, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. My eyes have seen the king. Chapter 7 and verse 14, Isaiah speaks of the virgin of being with child and calling his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. In chapter nine, he speaks again of a special child, a child who would be born to us, a son 
will be given and upon his shoulders the government will rest and he will rule as a wonderful counsellor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end and he will reign on David's throne. These scriptures you know well, they're, they're read each Christmas time, aren't they? And actually Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 will be the subject of next week's talk by my good friend Nick West. And then Isaiah goes into chapter 11 and he talks of the spirit of the Lord resting on this ideal king, this perfect king, who will be of David's line and he will have wisdom and understanding and he will rule and judge with righteousness. So the first 39 chapters seem to paint and illustrate um, the king. And then it ends at the end of 39 with this judgment that Israel is going into captivity, into exile. But chapter 40, as you turn the, into that chapter, it sounds a different note. It's a bit like turning over the pages of the New Testament. It begins with a message of comfort. It speaks of God coming. It speaks of good news. It speaks of Israel's sin being paid for, but doesn't yet explain how that's going to be accomplished. It's not immediately clear. Chapter 40 announces a voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, which John the Baptist identified with himself. But who is the one who is coming? Is he the one that's expected? Is he this ideal and perfect king? The spotlight on the second part of Isaiah falls not so much on a perfect king, but on a perfect servant, the perfect servant. These are two pictures of the same person, but I think we lose impact if we merge the pictures by calling him a servant king. I think we should see him as the king, the Lord Almighty, and the perfect servant, the arm of the Lord. Merging them seems to underplay his majesty and his awe and his wonderful humility as the servant of the Lord. In the second part of Isaiah, it's a bit like the Holy Spirit chooses to disclose this picture of the servant bit by bit. And I want you to imagine that you've gone to the theatre. It's an old fashioned theatre with seats and you've gone to watch a play. And for tonight, anyway, this play has four scenes. Your seat isn't in the front row. That's been reserved for a small group from Israel who were there. And for this, I'm going to call them the believing remnant or those who mourn in Zion. And they have a part to play at the end of the play. So you've, you've gone into the theater, you've taken your seat, you're excited and intrigued. The lights go down, the curtains draw and the spotlight falls on a silhouetted figure on the center of the stage, and it's not yet clear who this person is. And there's a narrator, which is God, the Father, speaking by his spirit through his prophet. And he begins to give you some information about this person, this servant. And God calls him his servant. And you see from the program notes of the play that there are five songs in this part of Isaiah, and they're known as the servant songs. And this play covers extracts from the first four servant songs. 
And scene one begins with the beginning of the first song, which is in Isaiah 42. It's an amazing song. I'm just going to read you the first four verses. And this is God the Father speaking. This is what he says in Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. He says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. God says, here is my servant. Or as the New King James says, behold, my servant. Take note. Take a good look. This is my servant in whom I delight. He's my chosen one, and I will put my spirit upon him. In the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, that's the Greek translation from the Hebrew, which was the version read by the early church and quoted in Matthew's gospel, it says, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit upon him. And that's in Matthew 12, verse 18. This is my servant, the one I love, in whom I delight. Those New Testament believers who know their Bible will recognize this, of course. At the baptism of Jesus, the Father spoke from heaven. He said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. With him, I delight. So we see the connection between this servant and the Lord Jesus. And at the baptism of Jesus, of course, the heavens opened and the spirit of God came upon him like a dove. In Isaiah says, I'll put my spirit upon him. Matthew 3, 4 says these, at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw, that's John saw, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. That's how God does his work. He puts his spirit upon us. He put his spirit upon Jesus. It's the seal of God. For God to put his spirit on Jesus was a declaration that he was pleased with him and delighted in him, that he loved him. He's saying he represents me fully and completely. He has my seal. So the lights in the stage are brightened from this silhouette figure. We now recognize who this servant is. We recognize the person on the stage. And you may have missed the connection between the baptism of Jesus and these words in Isaiah 42 before, because Isaiah uses the word servant. And the New Testament uses the word son. And we've made a big distinction, haven't we, between sons and servants. And maybe in that we've missed some of the worthiness and honor of being a servant. 
We understand in the normal sense that servants serve out of duty, maybe for pay. But the son serves because he is the heir and he serves to honor his father. This servant is clearly not a hired hand. He carries the higher distinction of the servant who seeks the honor of the one who sent him. Jesus modeled true humility and servanthood when he said, I am among you as one who serves in Luke twenty two twenty seven. And in John six thirty eight, he says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In other words, I've come to serve him. And the apostle Paul reflects deeply in his theology of Jesus as servant. In one of his greatest teachings, he said that Jesus took the form of a servant. In Philippians 2 verse 7, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, the death of a cross. And I have no doubt that Paul was very familiar with these passages in Isaiah, influencing a lot of his teaching. Here, behold, is my servant. And then the song goes on to say he will not cry out or shout out or raise his voice in the streets, meaning I think that his aim is not to draw attention to himself. Perfect servants don't bring attention to themselves. But they honor the one that sent him. And then he said a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, meaning with gentleness and love, he will draw the thirsty and the heavy burden to him to find rest. Did you notice the mission of the servant? Behold my servant. Three times in those four verses, God describes his mission. And it's truly remarkable. His mission is to bring justice to the nations. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. And in verse four, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. That is the mission of the servant. That is what Jesus came to do. Justice is close to the heart of God. He loves justice, it says in Psalm 11, verse seven. The prophets spoke about injustices a lot. Everything around them that was not right, they pointed it out. And Isaiah does this throughout his book. But what is this justice that it's spoken of here that the servant will bring? We can think of justice in, in different ways. There's a kind of legal justice, which is ensuring that right is done and that wrongs are exposed and punished. And that's a way of seeing justice. We can also see social justice as a means of fairness, of equal handedness, that everyone is treated the same way with respect and dignity and honor, that there's equal opportunity, a fair distribution of food and shelter. And all of this reflects the concept of justice. It involves care for the weak, the widow, the orphan, protection for the unborn child, care for the homeless and the refugee. This is at the heart of what God means by justice, he will establish justice. The justice the service will bring includes all of this. But the justice he establishes is to bring everything into line with what it ought to be, to establish matters according to the right standard. Justice is the applying of righteousness. And in the Bible, the standard of righteousness is the character of God, 
So justice is God's plan and purpose to put everything right. It's what he wants for the world. It's God's world operating as God wants it to operate. It's as God intended it to be. God's purpose is being done, God's will being done on earth. And that is what the servant has come to do. And he will not give up and he will not falter until he has established justice on the earth. The servant is the one who's going to set things right. And he's going to do it from the root up. And for that to last, it has to begin in the human heart. Reconciling man to God, restoring man's broken relationship with God and with one another. So the servant's mission is to bring everything into line with God, to reconcile all things to God, to make all things new, to be on earth as it is in heaven. And he will not falter or be discouraged until he has done it. What a servant, <laughs> what a mission. What Jesus has come to do is truly outstanding. So scene one comes to a close, and you're amazed at how God has chosen to do such a great work through his servant, whom he has chosen and who he loves. And you don't know how he'll do it, so you're eagerly awaiting the next scene, and the curtain closes. And then scene two begins with the second servant song, which is in Isaiah 49. And this develops the identity and work of the chosen servant. And now instead of God the Father speaking, it's the servant himself who is speaking. In Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has been my strength. He says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So we learn that his mission wasn't just for Israel. It's global. It's justice to the ends of the earth. And it's for you. And it's for me. And I'm contracting this, but scene two ends and you see how the servant fully agrees with God the Father regarding his mission. And it was good for him to say how much he knows that God honors him. He says, I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord. Then we get to scene three, the servant's purpose is set and the servant continues himself to talk. And in the third song in chapter 50, he, the servant, talks of his walk of obedience and intimacy with God as the secret to accomplishing his mission. Isaiah 50 verse 5 says these words, the sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. You see the servant being a perfect servant didn't come to do his own will, but he came to do the will of the one who sent him. 
And he says that God wakens him morning by morning, like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened his ears, so he's receiving from the Father that which he is to do. He's walking in humility. He's walking in obedience. He's walking in the will of his Father. And he goes on to say these words, I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and from spitting. And you're sitting there and you're beginning to, you're marveling because this isn't going as you expected it to go. This perfect walk of obedience has led to pain, suffering, mocking, shame and disgrace. And then the servant goes on to say, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? And you're reminded of how the Apostle Paul developed this passage into those great truths in Romans chapter 8. It is Christ who died. Who can condemn? There is no condemnation to those in Christ. As Christ was fully vindicated, so we are fully vindicated in him. And at the end of scene three, it's clear that something terrible has happened to the servant. And as scene four begins, the narrator takes over again. It's as though the servant can no longer talk. And he begins the fourth servant song in Isaiah 42. And you wondered what's happened to the servant. And again, God tells you to look, to behold, and to see. And Isaiah 52, verse 13, he says these words, See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him for what they were not told they will see and what they've not heard they will understand. And you pause in your seat and you reflect. This servant, chosen, loved, upheld. He became yielded, obedient, and instructed. And as a result was disfigured, beaten, spat upon, mocked. This servant has been vindicated. He has been raised up and he will sprinkle many nations. And then the people in the front row, the believing remnant of Israel, they get up and walk onto the stage and they begin to speak with one voice. They didn't get it at first, but now they do when they want to proclaim this message and tell everyone about this servant. And they say in chapter 53 and verse 1, 
who has believed our message? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? See, Jesus is the arm of the Lord, which is another name for God's servant. And then these Jewish believers, they go on to say something remarkable. They confess their former unbelief. In a way, they explain why they didn't believe him. In Isaiah 53, verse second part of two and three, they said he had no beauty. He had no majesty. My words, he didn't come like a king. He had no beauty. He had no majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom we hide our faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. But now they understand and now they confess. In verse four, they say, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The play finishes, the curtain closes, and you sit there stunned in silence and awe. You reflect on what you've heard, that Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. His glory on the throne of God with the seraphim, crying out, holy, holy, holy. And the infinite, and maybe more greater glory as seen on his cross, where God laid on him the sin of us all. And you hear God say to you, look, behold, my servant. And you hear his witnesses say, will you believe our message? That's the purpose of Advent, to look and to believe. That is the purpose of Advent, this season of consideration. It's to look. Behold. And to believe. So I wonder if you could take me off the screen, John, and stop the recording and just want to invite